sermon text comes tonight from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you very much, Tim. Well, we are uh, finishing up a series we've been on for several weeks now here in this letter of 1 John. Uh, and before we get started, let's just acknowledge that doesn't the storm sound in here like one of those sleep machines that you can buy that, you know, you set it on rainstorm setting. So hang with me tonight. I know it sounds like we got a sleep machine going, but hang with me. We want to finish up this series strong. Because this passage uh, that Tim just read, it probably stuck out to you, is really underlining and highlighting and putting in bold something that John has been saying over and over again throughout the letter. He's been saying it over and over again. He's been saying, here is 
the confidence that we can have because we know God through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a completely different kind of confidence. A confidence you cannot get anywhere else. You cannot get from any other source. Now, isn't it true that we in our time, in our place, seem to have a crisis of confidence? Wouldn't you, would you agree with that? We have a crisis of confidence? I mean, just think. We, I've got a question there for you on your outline. Just think. How do we settle disputes? How good are we in our society at settling disputes? I would say we're not very good at all. I mean, you, you turn on the TV and you've got this point of view being yelled at a high volume. And then it switches to another person telling this other point of view, yelled at an even higher volume. And we think maybe that just if we yell louder, then the other person will finally be able to resolve our deep problems. But I'm here to tell you, I don't think that is a very skilled way to deal with this problem of confidence. John, at the end of the letter, says it several times. He says it over and over. I have written this that you may know. I wrote this whole letter so that you may know that you have eternal life. And when you know you have eternal life, he says, four things. He says, you can know that God hears you when you pray. You can know that you have a new identity in Jesus. Uh, you can know that you now have been given a new understanding in Jesus. You can know you are no longer a slave to Satan anymore. I mean, do you hear how many times he says that? You can know. My question for you tonight is, where is your confidence? Where are you trying every single day? I think every single one of us is trying every day to put our confidence somewhere. The reason I think in our society why we have that crisis, why we're, we're not really better at settling disputes than we were when we were kids on the playground, right? We're not much better now as adults. The reason is we are busy trying to find confidence in self rather than trying to find the confidence that comes from God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so if you look at your outline there, I want to show you today, just like John says, this confidence that comes through Jesus actually can help you overcome the whole world. Anybody in here want to be an overcomer? <laughs> Anybody in here want to know how to overcome problems in life? Wouldn't it be nice for us to be a people who, in a world of just this sort of relativistic mush where no one can really say what's true or not. Wouldn't it be good for us to know in a humble way, but yet know we've got the truth? Here's how you do it. Jesus gives us a, a confidence that can overcome the world by answering these three questions. Look at, look at your worship outline there and you'll see where we're going to go in the sermon. First of all, this passage uh, answers why we lack real confidence. Why we lack it, even over the most basic questions like what is right and what's wrong. Secondly, it shows us what the basis of real confidence is. And then lastly, it helps us to see how real confidence can change our lives. The fruit that real confidence bears in our lives. All right, so why we lack it, what the basis is, and how it can change us. How it can bear fruit in our lives. First of all, uh, why do we lack confidence? Look there at verses 1 uh, through 3a, the very first part of verse 3. Look at that. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. Listen to that. This is love for God 
to keep his commandments. What John is going to be teaching us here is this. The problem that you and I and that our whole culture has with confidence, even in basic questions like what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, what's beautiful and what's ugly, what's, what's worth living for and what's not worth living for, the reason why we can't seem to decide what the answer to those questions are is because we have a quarrel, an issue with our maker. We have a problem with the one who made us. See how John links together two things there in those first three verses? He links together loving God and listening to God's word and obeying God's word. Those two things are linked together. You cannot separate those two things according to those verses. He says, if you love God, here's what you're going to want to do. You're going to want to be under the sound of God's voice. You're going to want God to tell you what to do if you love God. Anybody in here like to have God tell them what to do? Sometimes that's hard, isn't it? But love for God, John says, produces that desire for God to tell me what to do. And also, it produces the determination in my heart, the the drive and desire for me to want to obey the things that I've heard God say. Now, if that's true, the flip side is also true. If I don't like for God to tell me what to do, If I don't have a desire in my heart to follow out the commandments that God's given me, what that means is I have, we have a love problem, a love for God problem, a trust problem. Now, you may be here tonight and you're thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe you're watching in at home. I don't know what you're talking about. I love God. I love him just fine. Me and God are cool. Me and God are tight. Me and God go way back. You may be thinking that. A lot of people think that. But John is saying, wait a minute, you can claim something. Remember, he's been saying all throughout the letter, you can claim something and it's not actually true. Here's the test. If you love God, you love to be in his word. You love to have him tell you what to do. And you want nothing more in your life than to live the way he's designed you to live. That goes all the way back to the very first page of the Bible. God designed us In his image, the Bible says. And in his image, in part, means that we were to be a people who were not self-ruling. We didn't just make up what life is supposed to be about from our own hearts. We were made to be a people who listened to the wonderful words that God told us. And our heart was made to sing in harmony with God's voice over our lives. That's why it says in Psalm 1, which we read in our call to worship today, it says that the man or woman who meditates on God's word day and night, day and night, meditating, turning over God's word in their mind and heart. That person is like a tree that's been planted by streams of water. A tree by streams of water, always receiving nourishment from God and therefore never having to worry about their leaves withering, never having to worry about whether their lives are going to really be fruitful or not. You see, that's the design. That's what John is saying. We're designed a certain way. And the reason why the whole world has lost the plot of their lives, the reason why you and I have lost the basic structure and the basic ability to be able to distinguish questions of right and wrong and referee those answers to those questions is because we have lost our anchor point in our designer and in our maker. We're a lot like a boat out at sea. You know, a boat at sea needs to either be sailing or anchored. If it's not anchored, if it somehow gets detached from its anchor, 
It just gets carried wherever the wind and wherever the waves take it. Or like the, the big glaciers that you read about up in the Arctic, you know, when things start to warm up, one of the glaciers might melt away from the mainland and break off. And they begin to drift out into the ocean. And the further away they get, the hotter climates they begin to, to sail off into, the more they melt. They lose their structure. They lose their basic purpose for existence. John is saying, that's what's wrong with our world. We were made for the word of God. We were made to hear great things from our maker, wonderful words of life. And instead, we've turned against him. And because we've turned against him, we've lost our footing. You say, if you're still thinking, no, I don't know that that's really the accurate thing. I, don't, I think that's too negative a view of people. I want you to answer this question, which John brings up there in the middle of verse 3. If that's not the true story of the world, then why is it that you and I find obedience to God to be so burdensome? Notice what he says. This is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not supposed to be burdensome. They're not burdensome, actually. In, re in reality, they're not. So why is it? I'm asking everybody in here. I'm asking everybody watching and listening. Why is it then that I feel, that we feel, when God tells us what to do, it's the most terrible thing we've ever heard? <laughs> like, like we could just figure out our lives much better without having to entrap ourselves with all that religious stuff, we think. I'm, fine. I'm better off on my own. That's not, according to John, that's something we think is real freedom. We think it is. But we think it is because we have a deep problem of trust. We don't trust God. We don't love God the way we were designed to do. That goes for people who are sitting in church tonight, all of us. Sometimes church folks are the worst at this. Uh, sometimes we, listen, this is gonna, might blow your mind. Sometimes we want God's commandments to be burdensome. Can you think about why that would be? We want God's commandments to be burdensome. Why? Because we feel like if we have to obey God through the sweat of our own face, through the gritting of our teeth, that at the end we could say, God, look what I did for you. Now what are you going to do for me? <laughs> do you ever do that in your heart? Do you ever kind of strike up that sort of quid pro quo with God? Where, you know, where you say, God, look what I've done. Look, look at how much I've suffered for you, how much I've denied. Sometimes we want God's commandments to be burdensome. But you know, the person sitting in church doing that has the exact same problem as the person who would never darken the doors of the church. The person who is out living a completely self-serving life with no reference to God. Maybe that's you this, this evening. Maybe that's you watching in. I want to tell you, both sides, both persons have the exact same problem. We don't love and trust God. Therefore, we think his commandments must be burdensome. If I'm going to obey God, that must mean that I'm going to have to grip my teeth and suffer for it. John says, wait a minute, you got it all wrong. Obeying the commandments is simply a result of God loving you unshakably through Jesus, which then gives rise to you loving him in return just as unshakably because you love him. You should want to obey him. That's the first thing. The reason why we lack confidence is we've lost our connection to, to God. We've lost this connection of love. Now, secondly, John tells us what the basis of real confidence is. He tells us how to get our confidence restored if, if we would listen to it. 
And basically what he says is this. If our problem is we're trying to have self-confidence rather than confidence in God, then of course the solution is to abandon self-confidence and to once again place our confidence back on God. But see, John gives more detail there. He says the way that happens is by coming to terms with what God has done through his son Jesus and through the union that people who trust Jesus get to have with him. The way that our confidence comes off of ourselves and onto God is we come to terms with the beautiful and glorious and amazing thing that God did through his son Jesus and through making us one with Jesus by faith. That's what he says. Look there at verse 3 uh, all the way down to 12. You can see that. He says, in fact, this is love for God. His commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not? Because everyone born of God overcomes the world, conquers the world. How do you conquer the world? This is the victory, he says, that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, faith in what? Is it just faith in faith? Is it just faith that I'm a good person or that I'm a religious person? No. He says, who is it that overcomes the world? Verse 5, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The thing, everything and all of God's work all through history comes down to this. The whole Bible summarizes right there. God has acted to rescue the world that he made through his son, Jesus Christ. God has testified to the trustworthiness of what he's done through Jesus to such a high degree. He's testified to its trustworthiness to such a high degree that everybody who makes Jesus the center of their trust and focus begins to lose the weakness and the, the frailty of having trust in self and begins to once again gain the strength, the freedom that comes from having their confidence placed back in God, their heart set back on the Lord. Did you notice that? The, the way that God's commandments stop being a burden to us is by faith. The way that you and I stop trying to obey God through gritted teeth, the way that you and I stop trying to disobey God because we think to, to obey him will be just a life of dullness and boring and yawn. I, you know, I just don't want that. The way to get away from that is to once again have our lives planted in the soil of what God has said and done in this world. And the centerpiece of that, the point of the spear of all that work, is that he sent his son into the world and testified to his trustworthiness. Now look, uh, look there at verses 6 and following. It says there that God testified to the work of Jesus in two big ways. Okay, two big ways. He testified to Jesus in history, and he testifies to Jesus in our hearts. There's a double testimony of God that makes us sure that, that Jesus is really from God and that Jesus really can take care of our lives as Lord and Savior. First of all, in history, notice what it says there. Uh, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in, a, in agreement. We accept human testimony all the time. You know, you, you learn things about stuff you haven't seen yourself or haven't done yourself. Because somebody who has seen it or done it tells you about it. 
Now, if we accept what people say, how could we not, he's saying, accept what God has said through Jesus about his heart for us, about his love and grace for us? And he's done that both in history and in our hearts, through the water and the blood, and also through the spirit that is given to us. Now, that's a very confusing section there. Definitely don't have time tonight to go into all the ins and outs of what it means. But I'll say this. Blood and water definitely point to the actual life of Jesus on this earth in some way, shape, or form. Some people think it's his birth and his death that it's referring to. Some people think it's his baptism and his death. Some people think that it's just his death because, remember, John was there at the cross, John the apostle. And he saw that when the soldier sort of pierced Jesus' side, out flowed the blood and the water. And John testified, Jesus had really been crucified. He had really died in our place. Well, no matter which one of those is true, what it's saying here is you don't have to guess about God because God actually has come to you. God has actually entered the world in real flesh and real blood. He really said a bunch of things. He taught us a lot of things. He really did a lot of amazing things. He lived an absolutely perfect life. That's one of the most amazing things, really, about Jesus, isn't it? I say this all the time, but you just don't find in history somebody who is perfect in love, but also and perfect in his obedience to God, but also at the same time a humble friend of sinners like me and you. Uh, most of the time, if someone's really good, they don't like people like us, right? <laughs> they look down on us. They look down their noses. And usually when people like us, they're not, you know, maybe not very good, right? I don't have a great reputation. But you see, Jesus combines both of those together. He came by water and blood. He, he was willing to give up his very life on the cross for the sake of people like us who deserved only death from God. But he also, after he died, he rose again. Why did he rise? So that he could send the Spirit, you see. It wasn't enough for God to just show up in history and say some things. It wasn't enough for those things to get written down in the Bible. God wanted us to have a direct connection in the heart with him. And so by his resurrection, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is really, this whole section of, of John is like a roadmap to what faith looks like. It's, it's a map to how somebody becomes a Christian. God sent his son into the world 2,000 years ago. But then God sends his spirit into our hearts today, this very day, like right here, right now. And he testifies in our heart to the trustworthiness of what he did through Jesus. And that person who knows that God has done something through his son begins to believe in Jesus and a new confidence just begins to soar into their lives. Suddenly, I don't have to live a sort of do-it-yourself kind of religion, a do-it-yourself kind of faith, because I know Jesus has already done it. Suddenly, I don't have to run away from God, because I now know by looking at the life of Jesus that running towards God is the most healthy thing I could possibly do, because there was nobody who was more healthy than Jesus. Isn't that right? There's no one whose life was more joyful than the life of Jesus. And so I know by looking at him that obeying God's the best thing for me. Truly, somebody who meditates on God's word day and night is like a tree who's been planted by streams of water, bearing its fruit, never withering in its leaves. Why do we know that? Because Jesus was that man. <laughs> he filled his heart with God, his father's word. He loved to do the will of the father and he flourished at it. Well, guess what? If you're a Christian tonight, 
The spirit that he sent you is the very same spirit that was at work in Jesus. If you're not a Christian tonight, if you're not sure what you believe, know this. The promise of God is if you call on his name. And if you ask for that spirit to get at work in you, and if you ask for him to make you new, the Bible says asking for the spirit is a, is a message or, or a, a prayer that God will always answer. He'll always come to our, to our aid. He'll always fill us. That's what this is all about. This is what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. Jesus takes the burden off, the burden that used to be there because I felt like God and I were at odds. Like I had a certain vision of my life that I needed God to get on board with. And now I realize that it was God's vision all along that was what I was meant for. And so Jesus takes the burden off and he, he gives us wings in a way. He, he, he replaces our burden with wings to help us be able to walk confidently and faithfully with the Lord. And so again, tonight, where are you placing your confidence every day? Where, where are you trying to find faith? Where are you trying to find certainty? That's the second thing. Now, thirdly, and we'll, we'll do this one a little bit quicker, but how could this confidence change our lives? What fruit does it bear? And John there in uh, verses 13 to 21 tells us three ways that confidence in Jesus changes your life. Three ways. All right? And basically, all of us know how this works because we've done it. Uh, you know how it feels? Have you ever tried out for a sports team? How did it feel during tryouts? Uh, it was very nerve-wracking, right? You went every day with butterflies in your stomach. You know, you, you worried every time the coach looked at you funny. You know, you, you, you were just always a, a basket of nerves. Or, or when you apply for a job, well, how does it feel to have a job interview? I hate having job interviews, right? It is so nerve-wracking. Well, then compare that feeling with the day when you walk in the locker room and you see that list of names, and you walk over to it, that long walk, and up on that list, you see your name. How does that feel? All the nerves go away. Or that day you get a call, and you thought you bombed the interview, and they called you and said, no, we're going to give you the job. How does that feel? So different, right? Confidence, you see, when it comes into your life, especially when it comes from outside, begins to transform the way you think, the way you feel, the way you process everything. John says here, God wants, I want you to hear this tonight if you don't hear anything else. God wants every one of his children to have confidence that they are his children. <laughs> he doesn't want you to doubt that. He doesn't want you to always be questioning that. Now, sometimes we go through periods of life where we do doubt it, where we do question it. But God doesn't want you to stay there. God has actually given you by Jesus and by the Spirit, by His Word, He's given you a roadmap into how to leave lack of assurance and to come into the land of confidence and into the land of assurance. Look what it says there in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know this. God wants your life to be transformed by that assurance and knowledge. One really old you know, preacher, old writer, said it this way. Being in God's grace gives you heaven after life, afterward. But seeing yourself, knowing that you are in God's grace, gives you not just a heaven after, but a heaven here too. 
In other words, the Christian who is a Christian but is always questioning whether they are is a person who will have heaven later, but they sometimes, if we're frank, they walk through hell here, constantly battling in their own heart. But you see, the Christian who not only is in grace, but knows they're a Christian and knows they're in grace, can begin even now to have a little bit of taste of heaven. Now, really quick, I'm not going to take a lot of your time, but let's look at the three things that he says happens. The first thing that happens is it changes how you pray. Real quick, changes how you pray. You begin to pray with a new kind of boldness. Look at what he says. Verse 15. If we know that God hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have, we have what we have asked of him. When you know you're a Christian, you know God's listening when you pray. Now, notice what it says, though. If we ask according to his will, it says there in verse 14. And then later, there's that really mysterious passage, you know, paragraph in verses 16 and 17 that we're not going to necessarily talk about tonight, but he says that there are some times where we pray for things that we don't get because maybe we're praying mistakenly. You know, we're not praying really in line with God's will. But overall, as a Christian, you know this. When you are praying God's words, when, when you're praying on the basis of his promises, you can know God's ears are wide open. God's heart is wide open. And God's hands are set on open, (laughs) ready and willing to pour out whatever it is that you and I need as believers. It's amazing. It changes how you pray. It gives you a boldness, but at the same time, a a, a humility, you know. We recognize that, I mean, I don't know what to pray for half the time in my own life. Half the time I pray for things really wrongly. But I know this, if I keep persisting in prayer... If I keep persisting and listening to God, and if you do that, I know that God listens and God knows how to bear with his weak children stumbling through prayer, and God knows always how to answer. That's the first thing. Changes how we pray. Secondly, it changes how you live, how you actually live every day. Look at what it says there in verses 18 through 19. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. This is something John's been saying. The one who was born of God keeps them safe. Jesus keeps them safe. And the evil one can't harm them. We know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. In other words, here's what happens. When somebody becomes a Christian and has the confidence that they are a Christian, they know unshakably, what I once was, I am not anymore. My position in this world is that, that, that was back in the past, is not my same position now. Before, I was a slave to sin. I had to do the things that I wanted to do all the time, and it enslaved me. I had to listen to the the fears and the accusations of Satan, and it really shackled me. But now that I'm in Jesus, I know I'm free. I know what defines me now is child of God. Son of God, adopted into God's family. And it gives me this new heart where I no longer want to do the things that displease my father. It's not that obeying God is this hopeless burden, this this list of things I have to do or else. You know, do this or else. Suddenly it becomes, God, if you've loved me so much that you gave your son for me, why would not I want to walk every day in the path that you've laid out for me. It changes the way you live. But then lastly, look at it. 
it changes what you cherish. It changes what you cherish, changes what you value in your life. Look there at verse 20 and 21. We also know that the Son of God has come, and he's given us understanding. Literally, he's given us a new mind, a whole new way to think, so that we now know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son Jesus. He is the true God in eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. In other words, what happens is when you become a Christian, you know that the greatest treasure in your life, the thing of greatest value, is your deep and personal relationship that you have with God. He knows you, and you know him. He will never stop knowing you, and you can never stop knowing him. When you see that, the other things in your life that you once were tempted to worship and put your trust in and really rely on, all those things in your life. I mean, for me, I know this, this is a confession. If I look back over my life, most things that I've touched, I've tried at some time or the other to turn into an idol. <laughs> I've tried to worship a lot of other things. Think about it in your own life. Money, career, family, reputation, whatever it is. We, we try to worship those things, don't we? But if we know, if I know, hey, I've got a home with God. I've got a place at God's table, the family table. I've got God with an open ear ready to listen to me when I pray. I got God teaching me from his word so that I would know the right way to live. I got all that. Why do I need the money to be more than just money? It can just be money. Why do I need the family to be more than just my family? It can just be my family. My job can just be my job. My reputation can just be my reputation. Only God is God. <laughs> and when I know that, and the only way I can know that is to know that through the cross, Jesus died for me, and through the resurrection, Jesus lives to give me life. The only way I can know that, and when I know that, all the idols begin to seem strangely a waste of time. I've been pouring so much of my energy and time into things that just won't last. Only he can. That's the solution. All of that, John is saying, that's the solution to our confidence problem. The reason we don't have confidence is we've got a serious love problem with God. But God has remedied that by showing the greatest love to us, even when we didn't deserve it through Jesus. If we place our faith there, it'll transform everything. Would you pray with me tonight? Father, we thank you so much for your love and grace, for gathering us here today, for, for those that are at home watching or listening to this later on. God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, just like this passage says. Help us to be sure about Jesus. Lord, in these days, in this, this year, Lord, we're, we're just not sure about so many things. So many confusing things around us in our society, in our jobs, in our families, even in our church. God, please make us sure of Jesus. Make us sure of your love and help us to build our life there, to plant our roots there. We love you tonight and we ask that you would accept the rest of our praise through the blood of your son, Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.